distressing were the everyday scenes now witnessed. Thousands and tens of thousands of the Portuguese population crowded the narrow roads leading to Lisbon, frequently mixing with and impeding the retreating army. These miserables, having buried their valuables and left their homes, were staggering along carrying their children and heavy burdens. To complete the misery of all, rain fell heavily day after day, so that the roads, always bad, were by the passage of artillery, baggage and cavalry, made nearly impassable. Several men, not being able to keep up, were taken prisoners. That's Fusilier John Cooper of the 7th Royal Fusiliers. He's talking about the aftermath of the Battle of Busaco, fought in Portugal on September the 27th, 1810, as you'll recall from last month's podcast episode. Wellington and the Allied army had stood on the steep ridge of Busaco and dished out a hiding to the French invasion force under Marshal Massena. It had been more of a metaphorical stiff jab rather than a devastating right cross. And now, outflanked by the French, the Redcoats were falling back towards Lisbon. Many were expecting to board boats and head back to England with their tail between their legs. But their Commander-in-Chief Wellington wasn't that sort of man. He had bags of testicular fortitude, coupled with an overabundance of tactical and strategic ability. Like any good chess player, he was one step ahead of the enemy. Since 1809, Wellington had been working on a strategy to defeat the third French invasion of Portugal. That strategy entailed rebuilding, re-equipping and training the Portuguese army. They had done sterling work at Busaco and could now be counted as the equal of their British comrades in arms. The second part of his strategy had been a scorched earth policy that demanded the Portuguese leave their homes, burn their crops, kill their cattle and then retreat to Lisbon, leaving behind a country that was a desolate wasteland. The aftermath of that is what Cooper was talking about at the top of the show. The final element of Wellington's plan was the one that had been kept a secret from nearly the entire army and population of Portugal. It was the epic building project that was known as the Lines of Torres Vedras, a ring of fortifications across the hills that blocked the road to Lisbon. It was one of the greatest military engineering feats ever seen in Europe. A young subaltern, Charles Leslie, saw the fortifications for the first time from a boat heading towards Lisbon. He recalled, About a league below Villa Franca, we observed a considerable range of heights on the right bank of the Tagus, rising from the town of Alandra and stretching towards the west, on which appeared batteries and embankments. I inquired of the boatman what these were. He answered, Oh, sir, those are the lines. This was an enigma to us, but my friend, the aide-de-camp, solved the mystery. He said, That is the position Lord Wellington is now falling back upon and where he means to meet the enemy. This threw a new light upon us. Everyone wondered and became animated. Each one seemed to take an intense interest in examining the little we could see of such works as we swept along. It was unanimously agreed that our valiant commander had in this displayed the utmost sagacity. His secret had been well kept. None of us had ever heard of these preparations. So I'm joined on the show today by the excellent Dr. Mark Thompson. He's the author of a number of Peninsula War books, including Wellington's Engineers and Wellington's Favourite Engineer. He really is a world-class expert, and I highly recommend his books. He's also involved with the Friends of the Lions of Torres Vedras, whose aim is to raise awareness about the lions and to help conserve what remains of them. A worthy set of goals. 
There's a link to their website in the show notes, so do check them out. Mark started our conversation by giving me a full background to the development of the lines. So 1809, uh, Wellington, uh, Napoleon uh, fights the Austrians and beats them at, at the Battle of Wagram. And coming out of that armistice, Napoleon declared he was going to bring 100,000 troops himself into the Iberian Peninsula and throw out the British army that's there. So this is kind of the you know, very brief background as to what the lines of Torres Vedras about. At, the, at this point, there was probably a quarter of a million French troops in the Iberian Peninsula. Wellington had an army of roughly 30,000 British, backed up by roughly 30,000 Portuguese and a larger number of Spanish, but they were split all over the country. There wasn't a coherent force there. So Wellington was massively outnumbered and there was no way uh, he could stand against a substantial French army invading Portugal. The line to Torres Vedras was his reaction to that, which was a secure base which would be impregnable to attack, but would allow him to remain in the country and, and launch subsequent campaigns. So when did he have that idea? Have we been able to nail this down? And, and, and was it just Wellington's idea? I think I read in your book that maybe, maybe there may have been earlier reports that he, he drew upon. Yeah, OK. Answering them in that order. Well, Wellington went to Portugal, to, to Lisbon in October 1809, to, to look at it and the, the memorandum he wrote 20th October 1809 laying out the groundwork for the lines was written then but he had clearly been thinking about this for a lot longer uh, he was there in 1808 as we've already said and he was actually based around the town of Torres Vedras for a number of weeks before the French army left the country so he had a chance then to look at the, the terrain and get build a bit of understanding from it March 1809, just before he comes back out to the peninsula, he, he actually writes the government and says, I am absolutely sure I can defend Portugal if the French you know, send an army below 100,000 troops. So Wellington had obviously been thinking about how to do this for a while. The, his plan was October 1809. Answering the second part of your question, uh, the the earliest signs of fortifications that have been identified around Lisbon is 2,000 years ago. So this wasn't a new idea to build on some very big hills. So not rocket science. Coming back a bit closer to home, um, General Stuart was out there in 1797 uh, assisting the Portuguese resisting Spanish attacks. And he suggested you could defend the area to the north of Lisbon. Juno, the French commander who invaded in 1807, his chief engineer wrote comprehensive detailed reports on how to defend the river and the, the inland of Lisbon. One of the gentlemen working for him was a Portuguese engineer called Jose Maria das Neves Costa, who, after the French were evicted, continued his work and wrote an even more detailed proposal on how to defend the area. Now, the commonality in all these is yeah, the hills don't move. So everybody was broadly saying you need to use these hills. So Wellington came up with a different way of doing it. But the general idea was not new at all. And what was Wellington's way then? What, what, what is it he proposed? 
Okay, the, the the main difference between you know just keeping in, into the immediate sort of period, what what the French uh, engineer Vincent and the Portuguese engineer Neves Costa were proposing was using the hills uh, as defensive positions, sort of temporary defensive positions to slow down an invading force. The difference Wellington put into it was actually to put physical defences on key points on these hills to slow down or hopefully stop any French invasion. So different interpretations are on how to use the terrain to the north of Lisbon. And so he, he put forward this proposal. When did, when did work start on, on the lines? Well, Wellington's proposal was the 20th of October 1809. The first work started probably within about 10 days of that. Excuse me, by the first days in November, the first forts were, were, were being prepared. But one thing I must say, Wellington's plan, and we maybe get an opportunity to talk about this later, was more of, a, of a, an outline of what needed to be done rather than details. But what that original plan did say, I need you to fortify three areas. One was around the town of Torres Vedras itself. One was around another town called Sobral. And the third was around San Julian on the Tagus estuary. The first two were designed to slow the French down, but there being a, a defensive line behind that. The third one was Wellington's embarkation point, if it all went horribly wrong. So these three areas were started around November 1809. A lot of the other work wasn't actually started until January, February 1810, with a lot, but not all, complete by October 1810, when the British and the French all arrived at the lines. And I mean, just I guess it gives a sense of Wellington's uh, foresight in that at this point, I think I'm right in saying the British army was still sort of on the Spanish-Portuguese border, right? Sort of around Badajoz and, and around there. So he was thinking well in advance here. Is that right? Yeah, certainly uh, in, in the autumn of 1809, Wellington was about Badajoz. This was the back end of the Talavera campaign, which the British sort of claim was a great victory. But I think the truth is a bit more uh, nuanced, shall we say. Uh, Wellington was, was lucky to get back to the border, um, fought well. But you know, the, the first experience of, of working with the Spanish, uh, I don't think was to anybody's satisfaction. Uh, and, th and that, I'm sure, spurred Wellington's desire to look for alternative ways of defending against the French. At that point in time, it clearly wasn't going to be by working with the Spanish and defeating them on battlefields. Uh, a plan B was needed. And in, our, in, in one of the recent episodes of the podcast, we've looked at the Battle of Busaco. Could you give us a bit of an idea, a bit of a sort of engineering perspective in how involved the engineers were there in making that battlefield um, in a way that allowed the British to defend it even, even better than the natural, the natural barrier it was? Can you give us an idea of what the engineers did there and, and how that helped play a, a part in Britain's victory? Yeah, OK. Um, I'm sure some people are listening to this. I, I don't know whether you have, but if you've been to Bissarco, it's another big hill to put it mildly. Um, again, maybe going back to Wellington's foresight, working with the engineers, they were started you know, in the beginning of 1810, January, February 1810. There were engineers out surveying the whole of that area of the country. They were, they were looking at bridges, they were mining bridges, they were blowing some bridges nine months before the battle. Wellington's intent was really to channel the French 
um, where he wanted them to go. His biggest problem was he didn't know whether they would travel north or south of the Mondego. The obvious sensible route was south of the Mondego because that's where the best roads were. Uh, unfortunately, the French didn't play cricket on this and decided they'd go north of the Mondego. And there's some interesting current debates going on about whether that was due to the poor Lopez maps he was using, which is, shall we say, the traditional view, or, or whether there were a more nuanced view, which was if he went north of the Mondego, he could sack Vizal and then move down and sack Coimbra to get food and resources for moving on. So that, that's a debate that's still running around. Anyway, back, back to the question. Um, the, the work the engineers did on, on the battlefield itself, that they did some work to improve the, the lateral road running behind the British line to allow uh, improved uh, movement of, of Allied troops. There were some defensive earthworks built in the vicinity of the convent and certainly a day or two before they were, they were working 24-7 to get some uh, defensive positions there just, just to give a bit of cover for particularly the, the pickets on the line. Um, the other thing that was going on in the days immediately before the battle is that there was a senior royal engineer doing a detailed survey of the Mondego um, around Coimbra and right down to the sea and noting every possible crossing point, again, leaving Wellington's options. So the engineers were doing a lot of work uh, to support what was going on. It, it, again, to be fair, it should also be said that the Quartermaster General's Department were doing similar amounts of work, whilst it might not have been fully joined up. Their officers were also doing a lot of work in the area, surveying and reconnaissance. And the, you know, there were exceedingly detailed reports available for the British Army on how they would retreat from the position of Basako. So lots of planning went on. This wasn't a, a snap decision to use that ridge. Final comment before I let you get a word in is there was a similar ridge just to the south of the Mondego, which was also uh, had been identified so that had the French gone south of the Mondego, there was, well, basically the Basako Ridge continues south of the Mondego and a few miles further um, in front of that, there's another ridge called the Serra de Moita. So all these had been looked at with potential places to stop the French. And do you think at this point, did, did the, the prescribed wisdom, like most people assume Wellington's plan was just to bloody the noses of the French and pull, pull back to the lines of Torres Vedras. But do you think maybe he actually hoped he could stop and turn them around there at Busseco uh, until he was outflanked? Do you, do you think he actually hoped he could push them right back from there? Uh, it, it's an interesting question. Again, it's a little bit topical at the moment because there have been some other books on the area, but books like Kent and White's, which I'll I'll give you the details if you want later. But I think Wellington intended to try and stop them there because he it was a very very strong position. The route that the French took round the, the British left flank, Wellington was fully aware it was there. Um, so it wasn't a surprise to him that road was used. Wellington may, um, made um, arrangements for that route to be covered to stop the French going. Uh, he only asked for a, a, a couple of Portuguese militia regiments to, to do this. 
Um, Murphy's Law, the order didn't get through too late. They didn't get there in time. So Wellington had a convenient target to blame for the French uh, manoeuvring activity. It was clearly the Portuguese fault for two militia regiments not stopping the French army. Um, but why do I think he intended to stop it there? Well, it's it, it's the fact, if, if you look at what happened immediately after the Battle of Basako, having said there were detailed plans to withdraw the army, the whole thing just looks terribly hurried when you see what's happened over the coming few days. Uh, the, the, the inhabitants of Coimbra got about 24 hours notice to leave. And you read the diaries and they all talk about the roads full of civilians blocking it up without the right equipment for moving you know, people in, in, in inappropriate sort of uh, clothes. <coughs> Excuse me. There was significant amounts of stores destroyed at Coimbra itself and in some of the towns just to the south of it. It doesn't give the feel that this whole thing had been thought out in detail and Wellington knew he was going to give them a bloody nose and then immediately retire. You know, they were destroying huge amounts of resources, um, you know, which, which were just behind the British lines. So it doesn't add up in the same way that Wellington's Burgos campaign doesn't add up if you look at what was going on at the time. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, that, that is interesting. I think you make a really valid, valid point there. I'm sure, I'm sure some of the listeners will have their own opinions on that, but, um, but, it, but it definitely makes sense to me. And then, so moving on, after the Battle of Busaco, the British and the Portuguese uh, withdraw back to the lines of Torres Vedras. Can you give us a sense? They've had now, by this point, what, about a year to work on these things. Can yes. you give us a point, uh, an example of the scale of them, what was involved in building them, and, and when, when the uh, British and Portuguese retired into them, how they looked, and, and how many, a ballpark figure of how many redouts and that sort of thing, redouts? Yeah, okay. Um, I'm, I'm going to just start by, by using the figures in John Jones, but um, I, I will later on say that they're not right. Uh, but and just it, to clarify it, it, for, for listeners, John Jones was an engineer who was involved in the project, correct? My, my apologies. Jo John Jones wrote the definitive works on the sieges in the Peninsula War. Uh, and the lines of Torres Vedras are, are covered in the later third edition of that works. Uh, the, the numbers he used, and I said they're broadly correct, that there was something like 152 forts. That's the number John Jones had. Within those forts, there's something again in the region of 630 guns. And if every one of those forts was manned as expected, you're potentially having 35, 40,000 troops in the forts. Now, particularly that last number is really misleading because the intention was never to occupy all three defensive lines. I should go back and talk about defensive lines first. The the, the positions um, by the time the French arrived had two extensive lines running from the River Tagus across to the Atlantic. The first line, as it became, was about 29 miles, 47 kilometres long. The second line was 24 miles, 39 kilometres long. So these are extensive lines a lot of it on substantial hills a substantial hill in this context is anything up to 400 meters 400 meters high so 1200 feet but 
there's row upon row upon row of them with deep valleys in between. So crossing this area is exceedingly hard work. The third line, which was part of Wellington's original plans, was around the embarkation point at St Julian itself. Eventually, from December 1810, a fourth line was built on the south banks of the River Tagus to stop the enemy taking the banks, because from that point they could shell all the British shipping uh, opposite Lisbon. So going back to my point about the troops, around 40,000 would be needed to occupy all these lines, but it was never the intention to occupy them all at once. So you would occupy the, the fort in the first line, and when that was breached, the troops would fall back to the second line, and when that was breached, they would fall back to the third line. So the reality is that the number of troops ever needed to man the fort was probably more like ten to 15,000 than some of the larger numbers the, that you see mentioned. And maybe this is a bit of an ignorant question, but was this form of defence common in this era? Is it, is it something that had been done much elsewhere? I haven't, I haven't read much about other armies or, or, or in other campaigns building sort of defensive lines like that. I, th I think the answer is no, it wasn't. Uh, and pretty much to a, a man, <clears throat> excuse me again, uh, nobody thought it would work. That includes the engineers who spent a year building it. Uh, people just didn't seem to be able to sort of see the bigger picture that, that Wellington had in his mind. So this was unusual, but it was also unusual to have a position where, where you could uh, anchor one end of the line on an ocean and the other end or, or on a river that at places was a mile or more wide. So the, the circumstances were fairly unique, which I, I'm sure is why it was used here and not anywhere else. Because of the nature of the terrain, I say this, this wasn't a, a constant range of hills across. The, the 152 forts you know, were individual forts. They were individually designed for a point. It had a purpose to you know, cover a road or, or, or cover a valley. Um, in between them, there wasn't necessarily a, a continuous line of fortification. So it, they're called the lines, but they weren't. They were individual forts. But in between the forts, there would be scarping in some places. There could be ditches. There could be abatis, uh, you know, build, building uh, defences by cutting down trees. They cut down something like 50,000 trees. So all the cork trees and the olive trees in the area of Lisbon uh, were, were cut down to make sort of impenetrable barriers. So individual forts. But all the weak areas that then had substantial additional work done to make them really difficult to get past them. And can you explain the term scarping? Sc scarping is, is effectively making a hillside vertical, that very simplistic view. So some of these hills, which I say are going up to you know, potentially a thousand feet, uh, they will be drilling and, and using explosives to blow off the face of the hillside to leave a near vertical face, maybe only about eight or 10 feet. But it means you know, it, then you're back to scaling ladders if you want to even climb up the hillsides. So in the key areas, particularly around the Tagus estuary end uh, on the first line around Alhandra, there was about two miles of scarping there. And then later, really after the French had arrived, they started scarping the second line. Uh, and at the 
Atlantic end of the second line, the, the abatis built by cutting down trees was something like 15 kilometres long. You know, there was a lot of work done to ma make it difficult to cross this terrain. And am I right in saying that regular British troops weren't used to man these forts, at least not generally? It was mainly Portuguese militia with, with the British and Portuguese sort of field army ready to manoeuvre to any point where the French broke through. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, I mean, that, that's absolutely right. Uh, and it's, it, it's the thing that I, I find surprising today that, that Wellington's commanders, including the senior ones, Wellington's engineers just didn't seem to get this. Wellington's plan was always to use uh, militia troops and levy troops to man the forts and to keep his army essentially concentrated to manoeuvre against any perceived threat. So in very simple terms, when they arrived at the lines in October 1810, Wellington plonked his army in the middle of the front line uh, as the most sensible place to, to keep it, to be able to react to anything that went on. And um, do we know when the when the French arrived, um, what, what were their thoughts? Do, do we do we have many sources that say how the French felt about the lines? Did they think, oh, this is nothing, this will be easy? Or were they very, very concerned at what they saw? Yeah, I, I mean, there's, a, there's a number of uh, sort of interpretations of what's going on. Some of the best sort of um, and most accessible sort of comments are in uh, Pele's uh, sort of journal of, of the campaign, but there are others. I, I think that the French view is interesting in that the, the, there's, a, there's a classic account, and it's probably apocryphal, about Massena blowing his top when he, he first rides down to look at the lines and saying to his French advisors and to his Portuguese advisors, why haven't you told me about this? And you know, the, the, the answer being, well, we didn't know he'd built forts on the top and Massena's response was along the lines of, yeah, but he didn't build the hills, did he? So, I mean, that, that's tend to the, 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 the apocryphal view on what um, the view was. They knew before they got there that defences were being built. As a, you know, possibly many weeks before, they, they were getting rumours something was being done there. They underestimated the scale of the work, and that really isn't surprising because it was an enormous piece of work. And I think that's what shocked them when they arrived in front of the lines was not that there were defences on the top. It was just a continuous line of substantial defences as far as the eye could see. So I think there was uh, you know, really from Messina downwards, there, there was a huge shock and a huge demoralisation. The French troops were expecting to walk into Lisbon, the British evacuate, and then they could spend the next few weeks stripping Lisbon of everything worth having. So the, the actual morale effect on, on the troops are suddenly realising they're stuck in the cold and rain in October in Portugal with no obvious route forward, probably had a, a significant effect on, on how they felt. Some of the French uh, generals and marshals were all for giving it a go and making a substantial attack on the the common view, even in the British army, that if you concentrate in one place uh, and put in some diversion attacks, you're bound to get through. But in the end, Massena uh, decided that he did not have the troops to break through, and he probably didn't. And I mean, I, I don't know, this may be outside of your area of expertise, but what, why didn't he try? And if he... and, and... 
Why didn't he, um, what did he, how did he then explain that to Napoleon? Because presumably this was an army of thrusters. These were guys who, who would throw as many men as they had to into the attack. It seems strange to me that, that they didn't even try. Yeah, I, I think maybe going back to something I said several minutes ago, Napoleon's original intention when he uh, said he was coming personally was, I'm going to bring an army of 100,000 with me. Uh, when he decided that, that his um, heir to the throne was more important uh, and gave the job to Messena, Messena's army probably started at around 80,000, just generalisation again. By the time he arrived in front of the lines, having left troops along the way, he probably didn't have more than about 60,000. And that, even at that point, Wellington probably had more disposable troops behind the line than the French had. The French are already in a difficult situation. Supplies weren't as scarce as they were supposed to be, but there was, they were already worried about the supply situation. Uh, and you know, the defences looked absolutely impregnable. Uh, the, the, the first line at this point had defences at the Tagus end, almost nothing in the middle and a small amount at the Atlantic end. Wellington placed his army in the middle and then pretty much put the whole of his artillery. So you're talking potentially 70 guns into earthwork redoubts, filling the gap in the middle. So I, I think you know, a lot of the French officers were looking at this and thinking we might get through, but it's a bloodbath. And even then they knew that if we get through. The first line wasn't the strongest line. The strongest line was the second. So if we get through this, we've got to do the same thing again, six or seven miles further south. And I, I think, you know, overall, I think they were just overwhelmed at the scale. Uh, and Messina's view, without reinforcements, he could not get through and have a viable army by the time he, he got to Lisbon. Yeah, I suppose that, that, that does make sense. And then, so what happens at this point? So essentially then, the, the British and Portuguese have withdrawn into the lines, the French turn up. What, what happens next? Okay, well, I, I think really, I, as you've just suggested, you know, the first um, attempts were to probe the lines and see what was going on. So there was a lot of reconnaissance done riding along, trying to understand the scale of them. So really, I, I do have to say uh, that the attempts were quite half-hearted. Uh, there was only two significant attempts made. Neither of them contained more than about 2,000 troops. Uh, and both of them, to me, felt like he was just, you know, just you know, sort of point, you know, poking them with a stick to see what the response was. Uh, I mean, in one case around Sobral, the the attack was made by the 4th Battalion newly arrived of a regiment. These were raw recruits. It felt more like blooding some troops than a serious attempt to, to, to break through the lines. But two or three attempts were made over the first week or 10 days, none, none of them on any scale. And then Messina did very much decided that, you know, I'm going to have to wait for reinforcements. What One of the things that probably isn't clear from the general views of the lines. You know, Messina didn't sit in front of the lines from October through to March 1811. Uh, four weeks roughly after he arrived, he pulled his troops back to, to Santarem. So you're talking 40, 50 miles away from the lines. There were some closer, but within four weeks, the main French army had pulled back quite away from the lines and a lot of this was about getting supplies. So 
really from the middle of November through to the beginning of March 1811, when the French left, you know, the French weren't in front of the lines and the lines weren't actually occupied. There was a token force there, but the British army and the British and Portuguese, the Allied army, was actually in front of the lines as well. So it, it didn't quite work out the classic way of, you know, they, they stood in front staring at them for, for five months. It was a, a slightly different picture. Because in your head, you imagine almost a sort of World War One situation with, you know, two lots of troops staring at each other over no man's land. But it was nothing like that. The, the first few days were, but that that rapidly sort of changed. The, the weather at this time was utterly appalling. So I, I think finding shelter and, and food became the priority for everybody. Not a problem for the for the Allies uh, getting supplies in through Lisbon. More of a problem for the French, who became uh, more and more brutal in their methods of, of fi finding foodstuffs in, in the Portuguese countryside at that time. And that 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 was eventually their downfall, right? And that's that. Uh, that lack of food and lack of supplies. And that's why they ended up essentially withdrawing without really putting up much of a fight. Is that right? Uh, again, all these things, that, that there's so many different interpretations on it. The, the classic uh, interpretation is that. But you were certainly seeing many, many diaries at the time, uh, people commenting on how much food still seemed to be available to the, to the French army. Certainly uh, through to the end of the year, that was the case. It got harder after that. And more and more of the French army spent their whole time searching for food than being in a position to defend against the surprise attack from the Allies. So I think by, by March, well, I think the decision was made in February 1811 and Masséna met with his, his senior officers and the decision was made that since they'd heard nothing from anybody, there was no sign of any reinforcements, they really were left with no choice. Uh, but to retreat. So the, the lines of Torres Vedras had, had, had fulfilled their duty by this point. The French had only been in front of them for a few weeks and, and they were never to see them again. Is that right? Yep. So the, was, the, it, was it worth it, I guess, is my question. Well, I, I think without a doubt it, it, it is because, you know, the, the, obviously the, the, the other question is if they weren't there, what would have happened? Uh, if they weren't there, then Wellington would would have eventually been forced to stand and fight a battle. His odds of, of winning would have been much better by then because of the general wear and tear on, on the French army. But as he kept being reminded by the British government, uh, you have the only British army in existence. You know, please don't break it. Uh, and th this was a message that came through every two or three weeks. You know, just, just in case you've forgotten this since I last mentioned it, you know, don't break the army, please. So you know, Wellington's view all the way through was, if I can beat the French without fighting them, that was my choice. And th there's a number of long letters home uh, where he discusses the options for attacking the French. You know, I'm stronger, my troops are in better condition, uh, the French are, are disorganised because of, of, of going looking for food, etc. But no, I think I'll just keep waiting. So the thought about it, the British... Officers, I think, generally were pretty disgusted that he wouldn't go out and, and fight them. But Wellington was looking to win the campaign, not win a battle. And, and they are very, very different. He could achieve his aim by just sitting tight and waiting and, and, and see what the French did. As it happened, Wellington had just made up the decision that he was actually going to attack them. Uh, he was waiting for 
reinforcements which were due in February, which were delayed and didn't turn up until the first days of March. And pretty much to the day, Wellington's reinforcements arrived the same day that Massena's retreat started. So had Massena waited another week, it could all have been very different. So with the whole building of the lines of Torres Vedras and, and, and the, essentially the success of the campaign around them, what, what does this tell us about, about Wellington? What, what, what does this tell us about his character and what sort of general he was? Well, I think there's a, there's a, there's a couple of things. And, and I mean, you know, in the same way Napoleon does, he, he does tend to get up to sort of cult status with, with many people. But I think there's, there's, there's two major things I take out of what Wellington did there. The first is his planning and attention to detail in that he'd been thinking of this probably since 2008, a, a year before he actually starts seriously looking at it. So he'd been mulling this around for a while and he was always known for his organizational bent and I think this is just a, an example of it that he thought about what he wanted and then he did it which is what the French and the Portuguese didn't so I think attention to detail and planning is one thing the second thing is sticking to your plan when you're convinced it's right now that that includes not very politely telling the government to go away when they kept trying to second guess what he was doing. But I think more importantly, his refusal, his refusal to go to support of Almeida and Theodad Rodrigo during the French invasion, because he was just not strong enough to fight the French at that point. He stuck to his plan. When he got to the lines, he stuck to his plan again in declining to go out and fight a battle, even when it got to a point where he would be quite certain to win it because the French army had degraded so much. But no, he had a plan which was wear them out and, and beat them without a battle. And he stuck to it. Again, something he'd done from about May 1810 through to March 1811. So again, sticking to that plan for nine months. And I think that they're the two points that come out most to me in, in, in this campaign. I think Bruce Lee would call it the art of fighting without fighting. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure Sun Tzu will have some uh, eminently quotable sort of maxim for this as well. But, you know, again, you know, Sun, Sun Tzu does say this. You know, if you can beat the enemy without fighting them, that is you know, the greatest victory you can have. Um, and I mean, there's, there's some wonderful quotes around about this. I mean, he says going to, to look for it. This is a very recent one. If a battle had taken place in which one side lost 30,000 and the other a few hundreds, it would echo down the pages of history as the greatest victory ever won. This was the 8th Duke of Wellington said this. So that's quite recent. Um, going back 100 years or so, Charles Ullman, uh, I, again, I'm trying to do this from memory, says something like, you know, the, that, the, the high point of the French Empire came on, on a wet and windy hillside outside Sobral in October 1810. You know, it was a small part, but I, I, in 1810, this was the only place where the French had lost in yeah. Europe for some time. Small start, and it played a part in, in, in the wider defeat. So you, you've been involved with the lines, studying them and looking at them for quite some time. 
I believe there are still a lot for people to go and visit. Sort of, a, I, I feel this feels a good point to move forward and, and look at that. What, what, what's still there and what can people go and see? Okay. Um, there are something like 104 of the 150 forts. And I must tell you, it's not 150 in a second. There are still something like 104 forts in existence. Um, different stages of, of existence from you can see the lump on the ground uh, through to some fairly significantly restored ones where particularly all the stone facing on, on, on the walls is in place. A lot of visitor centres there now so you can go around and you can see very modern what they call interpretation centres. So when I first went there, which is 15 years ago, it was all a bit bleak and you needed a good map and a lot of patience to find anything. There are now a number of tourist guides, trail guides. Uh, the signposting is fantastic now. There are car parks, there are places to eat. So it's a very, very different ball game. It's a great part of the world to explore anyway. It's very picturesque. Flora and fauna is good. The restaurants are fantastic. If you like it, Lisbon nightlife is good. Uh, and there's lots of military history to see. So absolutely worth going and having a visit. The Portuguese have very much in the last 10 or 15 years, I think, come to terms with what they have and the potential of it. They were made national monuments in their entirety. Uh, 2015, I think it was. So they, they are now protected in the same way as monuments are in the UK, which is uh, you still try to keep people off them, but there, there are now things you can do to, to dissuade people. They also now officially have a Lines of Torres Vedras Day, which is the 20th of October every year, which is the date when Wellington issued his memorandum uh, on the lines. So th there's, there's a lot more interest on what's going on uh, out there now. There's certainly lots to see. Quite often more than you'll see on the battlefield, I, I would say, but maybe I, I'm a little bit biased. <coughs> Just going back to a point I've, I've, I've picked up twice and not said anything. The, the generally accepted number of forts in existence was, a, was 152, which is the number in John Jones's book, which tends to be where everybody goes back to. Uh, his, his first publication was 1829, so still you know, very recent. When you actually look on the ground and, and, and read some of the, the letters of the time, that, that number rapidly comes goes up to 169 because some of the forts were in multiple parts. So fort number one actually had an A, B, C, D, E, F and G, as did fort five. There's a number that had parts A and B. These are modern uh, numbering system rather than then. So you can get up to 169 forts north of the Tagus. There's then quite a bit of evidence that I found probably about a dozen unnumbered forts on top of those. So we're up now to about 190. There was another 21 to the south of the Tagus in, in what they call the fourth line today. So that takes us up to 210. And then there's the other line of defences that, Joan, that Jones doesn't mention whatsoever, which is a line of defences built around the perimeter of the city itself, which adds another 29 forts. So in total, the number's more like 250 than 150. 
But go, go back to the point that you, that the ones you can see, there are about 100 you can go around and there are about 35 that are formally maintained by the local municipalities. So that there is still lots to see there. Brilliant. And if people go to the Friends of the Lines of Torres Vedras website, is all the information there about which forts they can visit and all of that sort of stuff? Yeah, what, what, what you find on the Friends website is... Um, a complete list of all the forts with information on each of it that's as they existed 200 years ago you will find links uh on the website to um local organizations there are a couple of, of guides you can download direct from the website there's a there's a, there's a small handy one and there, then there's a much larger one that's got that's got if you like itineraries for for day trips in the area, and that has maps and things on. So there is actually lots of information to be had now on, on, on what to do when you're out there. And if somebody wants to know something that, that they can't find the answer to, that there is a contact page on, on the on the friends website, or ask a question on Facebook, or ask a question on Twitter, and we will do our best to help you out. It, it, it is absolutely worth a visit because you can start the day with a good breakfast. You can have a good long lunch somewhere and then go out for dinner in an evening and, and see some re, you know, real history you can touch in the rest of the day. Yeah, it sounds like the sort of place where a geek like me could take their wife and get away with it because there's enough other stuff for them to do. I, I, I've done some bits out there with, with my wife and you, 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 you can make it something enjoyable for, for the family. It, it doesn't have to be tedious. Uh, but I mean, the, the good thing in the last 10 years is, is I, I, I think there are now seven interpretation centres open by the Portuguese municipalities across the area of the lines. So there, there is a lot of new stuff. A lot of it's hands on. So I won't say it's completely kid friendly, but it, it's it's kid interesting at least. So, you know, you, you, you can take your family out there and it not be a complete uh, sort of boring day. And so the lines of Torres Vedras achieved their goal. The third French invasion was well and truly repulsed. You could argue it was one of Wellington's greatest victories, a victory achieved with very few combat casualties. I'll be covering the lines in more detail in the next volume of my History of the Peninsular War book series. Volume 1 is already available on Amazon as both a Kindle and a paperback, so if you want to support the show then purchasing it will really help. Just search for the Military History Geek's Guide to the Peninsular War. Next month, the podcast will return with a deep dive into the punishing Battle of Fuentes de Añoro. Join me as Marshal Massena attempts to lead his army back into Portugal to relieve the besieged city of Almeida in May 1811. As you can imagine, Wellington's having none of it and quite a scrap ensues. It's a close-run battle. Will Massena get turned around or will the Redcoats have to withdraw once again? Join me then to find out. <laughs>